four, three, two, one. Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. And we're back in the studio. The holidays are over, and you know what season it is, Leanne? What? It's cold and flu season. You are not telling me anything I don't hear now. Like what? 10 phone calls a day. People calling and saying that they're sick with upper respiratory symptoms. Is that what your office is like? No, it's more like I want a Z-Pack. Yeah. I want a Z-Pack because (laughs) I have the flu. Okay, guys, the flu is a virus. It does not respond to antibiotics. everything is a virus. Like, can, can we just say that across the board? If you have snot, it's a virus. Right. And so, therefore, do we have antivirals? Well, it's almost like I thought I was sick, but it's but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. And it is for seven days. And I'm going on a cruise next week and I can't be sick as if your body cares. Right. Right. Like the reason for needing an antibiotic is because I have somewhere else to be. So the fact that an antibiotic wouldn't work under normal circumstances, now it will because you're going to Paris. But don't you understand? My body's different. I don't respond like other people. I know my body. I know my body and I know it always, wait a minute, goes to my chest. Always. What percentage of your patients did not get flu shots this year? You know, I, I actually, I think I'm spoiled because I would definitely say that my patients fall into two groups, the people that come in asking for their flu shots and then the people that have some deep philosophical belief for why they don't want or need one. But, you know, I tell people nowadays that you have to decide what you're going to do, because if you don't want to be a vaccine person, then you also can't be an antibiotic person. That's correct. Right. Because that makes a good point. (laughs) I have to say, since 2017, I've done a flu vaccine every year since then. So this is year two. Wow. Who's that talking? Well, this is our guest today, Dr. Monica Munoz. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And what kind of doctor are you? I am an endocrinologist. And isn't that lucky? Because our show today, How Sweet It Isn't, is a show about diabetes. I love diabetes. To our listening audience, did you know that diabetes is actually a Greek word? It means to lose water or to sieve. And diabetes mellitus, what the old Southerners call sugar diabetes, it is that because there's diabetes insipidus and there's diabetes mellitus. And then diabetes mellitus is divided into type 1 and type 2. But the word mellitus, and you'll love this, being a beekeeper, means sweet honey. So it's to leak water from sweet honey. And it's that sugar that pulls that water out. So one of the symptoms of diabetes you urinate a lot. And sometimes in type one diabetes, that's the initial presentation. So for the listening audience who I think most everybody knows that diabetes is a disease and it has something to do with sugar, but I think it's very confusing that there's type one, type two. And in the olden days, we would say juvenile or adult onset. Can you just, how do you break down the two types of sugar diabetes. So there's no more juvenile and there's no more adult onset. And the reason why is because now we see type one in both children and in in adults. In adults, we call it type 1.5, also known as late onset autoimmune diabetes of the adult. But then we're also starting to see a whole lot of type two in children. So the most important thing I think for people to kind of classify these would be why did it happen? And in type one diabetes, it's because of an autoimmune reaction. And in type two diabetes, it's for a whole host of reasons, but a big portion of it being lifestyle mediated. So what you're saying, so what you're saying to our listeners is, in type one, pancreas says, I quit. Regardless of the reason, I quit. I'm not making insulin anymore. And in type two, it's those freedom fighters. It's the insulin resistance fighters. It's we've got fighters out there, you know, and it's, and you're more insulin resistant, the heavier you are. So we're seeing more type two diabetes. How young 
are we seeing type two diabetes, Dr. Munoz? Oh my, I, well, I don't do pediatric endocrine, um, but we are seeing it as, as young as six, seven, eight years old, school age children. We're starting to see it. Um, but even so with type one diabetes, let me be clear, that's an autoimmune process. So it's not necessarily that the pancreas just gave out and said, that's it, I'm quitting. No, because even in type one and a half uh, patients that develop it later on in adulthood, many times I'll check their insulin levels and they still have some functioning. So that's why it, it can easily be mistaken as type two. I remember a patient and I'm gonna just say this, it's not really a HIPAA violation, but someone who's related to me. And she developed. <laughs> Meaning that they could come back and slap you in the face for this story. She developed hyperthyroidism. So, uh, she developed Graves' disease. But once her Graves' disease was controlled, well, when she had Graves' disease, she became an insulin-dependent diabetic. But once her Graves' disease was controlled, her diabetes was controlled without insulin, and she no longer required insulin. I thought that was a little odd, but I guess it was all part of that controlling of an autoimmune process. It could be, but with Graves' disease, hyperglycemia is frequently seen. Sometimes it uncovers a different beast of diabetes, but in other cases, it's just the whole system's just shutting down from the excess thyroid hormone. So then we'll, we'll see hyperglycemia that can be corrected once you correct the Graves' disease. So I think another important thing for listeners is that Typically, when we're talking about type 1 diabetes, we're usually talking about a younger patient population in general, number one. And number two, this is where you come in because a lot of time these people need insulin from the get-go and it's all about insulin management. And so those are those are one type of diabetes. The diabetes that we spend a lot of time crying over and spending all of our time with both patients and physicians are the type two diabetics, because that is the type of diabetes that has a lot of control prior to medication, right? With diet and exercise, yes. lifestyle changes, et cetera. And so that's where I think most people when we are talking about diabetes, need to be thinking type 2 diabetes and not getting that con confused with type 1 diabetes. Right. And, and type 2 diabetics, after having practiced in a primary care setting for three decades, these Show people off. usually, <laughs> no, it's just age. It's, it's not, <laughs> all right. So these, these are the patients that have the heart disease, the bad lipid problems, the vascular problems because type one diabetics, if they aren't treated right away, they die. Okay. You don't get insulin in a type one diabetic, you die. But type two diabetics can go on for years sometimes before they're even diagnosed. And that's why we are seeing, I think, more heart disease, more vascular disease, more peripheral vascular disease, carotid artery disease, more strokes in our diabetic patients is because we're dealing with a more obese population. We're dealing with a population that eats processed foods. Uh, we're dealing with a population that says, supersize me on everything. Average daily calorie intake used to max out at about 2,000 calories a day. I have patients that probably eat that per meal per day. And then they're shocked when we say, you know, you're diabetic. Well, nobody told me I was diabetic before. So, you know, I have a question about that. So basically what we're saying is that we're seeing an awful lot of diabetes for a lot of reasons that is now, you know, our, our cultural expectations, I guess, as Americans. But another thing is that we're talking about diabetes much earlier in the I call diabetes a spectrum disorder and we're, and now we're now diagnosing pre-diabetes and we're talking about people that are candidates to become diabetics later. So I feel like almost everybody feels like they want, it's like everybody gets diagnosed with sleep apnea. Everybody walks out of the primary care and goes, dang, well, I think I'm going to be a diabetic. The American Diabetes Association does recognize starting metformin as early as in pre-diabetes. Whereas before we kind of thought, oh, let's tailor it with lifestyle modifications first and then, you know, go from there. But no, we're taking it a step back. So tell us what is 
pre-diabetes and what is metabolic syndrome and why are people now getting that diagnosis so much earlier? So pre-diabetes, there's um, that can either be classified as a fasting, um, a fasting glucose averaging between 100 and 125 milligrams per deciliter. Um, a two hour oral glucose tolerance test after 75 grams of glucose is administered where that glucose will range between 140 and 199 or a hemoglobin A1C. And I say this because when I was in training, they used to kind of downsize the, the A1C, don't really use that as diagnostic criteria, but now we can use an A1C. So it's an A1C between 5.7 and 6.4%. And so a lot of people don't know this, but when you do regular annual blood work for most things, we are checking that glucose because we're doing either a BMP or a CMP and both of those tests include a glucose. So most people don't know this, but you are being screened for diabetes if you're having those blood tests done. Listening audience, BMP is a basic metabolic panel that includes electrolytes, that includes sodium, potassium, chloride, and how well your kidneys are functioning. A CMP is a comprehensive metabolic panel, which is a BMP plus some liver function tests, maybe a calcium they'll throw in there uh, and some other enzymes. So regular old blood work, Ira. Regular old blood Thank work. Thank you. Well, no, because <laughs> what happens is the patients come in and they want to know, what am I being tested for? Because I want you to test me for everything. We can't test you for everything, but we can do certain tests where if they show up abnormal, for instance, if your glucose is up and it's greater than 126 fasting, I may, in my practice, have them come back and get an A1C drawn because that will give me the average glucose over a 90-day period of time. But there are other tests we can do too, and I want Dr. Munoz to address those. And one is a glycomark and the other is a fasting fructose. Um, listen, y'all, I am sending Ira like hate balls out of my eyes right now because he is taking this conversation totally I off. Kind of you know, we, we got into this whole lab thing. He says, let's just glycomark. Who does glycomarks? Ah, okay. So anyway, so fasting for your labs in the, it, for doing your labs in the morning. One of the reasons is I, because we have to have a fasting glucose to make this diagnosis. Well, correct? let's be clear. So, so no, you do not have to have a fasting glucose. That's one of the three in order to make the diagnosis, either fasting, two hour oral glucose tolerance test or A1C. But let's be clear about fasting. Fasting means nothing in the system for eight hours other than water. So if you had that sip of coffee, no, 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 that's not fasting. Piece of gum. No, 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 that's not fasting. Water? No, I just said water. Thank you, Ira. Yes, water will count, but caffeine won't. Uh, when you have coffee, the caffeine will impact other hormones, norepinephrine, epinephrine. That causes insulin resistance. That causes a, a, an acute rise in your sugar levels in the morning. So those people are drinking some coffee and their sugar is 102. May have a falsely elevated sugar. There you go. Explain to our listeners, Dr. Munoz, what A1C is. You know, they're all, you know, they they confuse it. Listeners confuse us all the time, but you're not doctors out there and we get that. They don't call it A1C. They go 1AC, CA1, A1C. What does that actually represent? Explain that to our listening audience. So a hemoglobin A1C actually tells us the average amount of glucose molecules that are attached to hemoglobin over the last three to four months. On average, three months. We should be getting one of these levels every three months. Now, granted, we got to be careful for certain patients with any blood disorders or whatnot, anyone who might have had a transfusion. You know, if you got had a blood transfusion because you were sick recently, I'm checking someone else's A1C. Your mm -hmm. A1C didn't magically go from nine down to 5.4. Um, but in general, in the healthy patient, a hemoglobin A1C is the amount of sugar in, in the bloodstream over the last three months. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I always tell my patients, they say, well, that's an A1C. What does that mean? But there's a fudge factor there. And this is what I tell my patients. <laughs> what the, is the fudge the, factor? The fudge factor is this. <laughs> Too much go, fudge. How yeah. does, and, and that's bad unless it's sugar-free. And we're going to talk about how bad sugar-free <laughs> foods are. But, I, but I'm digressing here. If you take your A1C. <laughs> digression for dinner tonight before this show. <laughs> if, you, if you take your A1C and you subtract two and then multiply it by 30, that gives you a pretty much 
average glucose. So let's say someone has an A1C of seven. Seven minus two is five. Five times 30, your average glucose is around 150. Is that pretty <laughs> kosher? That's how we did it back in the caveman days. I would say so. <laughs> Three decades of experience come in. Okay. So. <laughs> no, because people want to know. That's a good roundabout way, though. I, I know that's not the actual formula, but that's close enough. It is. For, to, so that the patients can get an idea because, of, oh, my A1C is seven. Well, do you know what that really means as far as average glucose? And so I give them that little formula. Right. So they can calculate Well, you know it. what? You're absolutely right because every point on an A1C is roughly close to about 30 points. So now if you did an A1C of eight, let's see, you're going to make me do math. I haven't even had dinner. Subtract till you get six. You get six times 30, 180, bam. And that's what I'm telling patients when their A1C is eight. So yeah, you'd be right. All right. I, so I audience, audience, there, there you go. There's a number. Remember that. Subtract two, multiply Subtract by 30. Two, I think I'm going to take that. Let's back up to the patients that simply go to the lab and go, you know, stroll on into their doctor during mango season in my dad's case <laughs> and uh, oh, no. and get told that their fasting glucose is too high. And okay. so maybe they did an A1C as mango a follow-up. Mango season is, follows cold and flu season. Mango season six months from now, and oh boy, are we ready to roll? I, I might, I might avoid an A one C this next mango season based on the blooms. But anyway, okay. so okay, so you get your blood test. Your doctor tells you, you may have a problem. Perhaps you go get an A one C, which shows up in the pre diabetic range. Are these people testing blood sugar, or are they simply making sensible lifestyle modifications? What is your recommendation for people that have been told you're on the spectrum, but you're early? Well, I mean, that we tell them, continue to watch, you know, what you're eating, limit your total carbohydrate intake. It's, it's all about the carbs. I mean, we should probably make another show just based on carb carbohydrate intake, but limit your carbohydrate intake. That's huge. A lot of people don't realize when they're eating their mango. Yeah, it's natural. It's fruit. It's good for you. It's healthful. Yeah, but it's packed with sugar. So what do you think about low-carb diets? I mean, people always want to talk about low-carb diet, Mediterranean diet. What are what are your favorite diets? I think those are well, the Mediterranean diet is very is actually a very highly recommended diet that we love to recommend in, in the endocrine world. Um, now there's a lot of question about the keto diet. And I, I, I will say I, I would approve of the keto diet as long as the patient is well read and understands the limitations of it. So what is a keto diet? So basically the keto diet, it's a low carbohydrate diet. If we're going to call it something, the paleo diet is a low carbohydrate diet as well and probably much easier and, and, and sustainable. But with the keto diet, Diet, you're eating a lot more fat. Um, so you're generating all your metabolism, you're burning up all this fat, but because the carbohydrates just not there to, to sustain your metabolism. Um, so yeah, we've, we've got quite a few patients there um, on, on the ketogenic diet and are doing wonderful with their diabetes. Their A1C is coming down, believe it or not, their cholesterol is coming down quite a bit too. But that's also because of the improvement in their blood sugars. They're helping big time. So it's hard to avoid all carbs, but if you're going to avoid carbs, I guess you should avoid simple carbs and try to eat more complex carbs. Can you give us a little Well, the keto diet means avoiding all carbs, right? Yes. So Mediterranean diet, in a way, is sort of like almost the opposite of a ketogenic diet, right? Because you are eating complex carbohydrates in a Mediterranean diet because you're eating beans, Right. Yes, okay. you're absolutely right. You're just eating them at a at a smaller quantity. So it falls under that realm of a, of a low carbohydrate diet because you're not overdoing it. Um, but yeah, generally with the ketogenic diet, you're essentially limiting your consumption um, to less than 20 grams of carbohydrate. You'd be surprised where, <clears throat> where we get all of our carbohydrates from. A little bit of that creamer we put in our coffee in the mornings, that might have a couple grams. And one slice of toast, which you might have two slices of toast for breakfast. Well, one slice of toast on average will carry about 15 grams, 15 to 20 grams of carbohydrate. So bam, you're out from there if you want to go ahead and follow the keto diet. Do you find patients tolerate that or is it very difficult for them? I, I think it's every patient is different. 
I have had um, several patients that followed it to a T. Granted, these were morbidly obese patients. I got to say they were they were well over 350 pounds and were able to lose about 100 pounds on, uh, you know, uh, doing following that type of diet. Um, but there's some that can hang with it. And then there's others that just, they find it very difficult to sustain. You know, one thing that's always impressed me in, in patients who are that size. And I told that, uh, to a patient of mine uh, today who I did a pre-op for, for some, a gastric surgery. Generally people don't like to be fat shamed and, and, but I think as doctors, sometimes you have to do a little fat shaming because it's our job to keep people in line. And one of my favorite lines in the office were, is, has always been that a patient will say, well, it's not me. I know I must have a glandular problem. I need to see an endocrinologist. And my comeback has always been if the fork were a gland, everyone would have glandular so, problems. So you're saying you don't have a lot of female patients. <laughs> no, I'm saying, no. No, what I'm saying is that there comes a time where a patient has to take a certain responsibility for their own illness. And diabetes is the perfect disease to do that in because everyone can control their own diabetes because they monitor their blood glucoses. They know what can make their blood glucoses go up. They know what can keep their blood glucoses normal. They know what makes them go too low. So if you want to put a patient in charge of a disease process, diabetic education, and getting them to check their own glucoses frequently is the best way to do that. Patients who are diabetics and don't check their own glucoses are never under good control or either they're not diabetic. Well, and now, especially on the sensors, the continuous glucose monitors, I mean, I like to call it behavioral modifications, if you will. But the minute you put one on a, a type 2 diabetic and they go a week and testing, swiping, seeing what their sugar is after they eat that slice of pizza or after they eat that sandwich or after they have that that cup of coffee at, at Starbucks with the fancy creamers, they're like, whoa, I didn't realize that was happening to my blood sugars. So they start making these small little changes. I don't like to stick my finger. So now we put those patients on the freestyle Libre system. Yeah, and we're going to yeah. we're going to mm -hmm. talk about well, that the second yeah, half of the show. Let's do that. But, you know, already what I think if you are tuning into this show, you should understand is that a huge portion of our job and a probably a even huger portion of your job goes to counseling people on the choices that they make for food. Would yes. you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that most people are reluctant to make change, but I also think it's really daunting to try to make some of these changes because food is love and food is culture. And I imagine well, you spend a lot of time doing that. addiction that we can't run from. You have to eat. You want to stop smoking, you just stop picking them up and, and leave them. You want to stop drinking, you just stop going to the liquor store, but you can't stop eating. You have to eat. So it's always around us. And we, we really need to, to fess up and learn how to, how to do it and do it right so we can avoid the, the type 2 diabetes. So do you refer patients for nutrition counseling? To a certain extent. So in my practice, I found that nutrition counseling is a challenge because insurances, specifically Medicare, doesn't pay for a lot of sessions. So it's like a two visit ordeal. And I feel like, you know, you spend years counseling patients on dietary choices who are diabetics. Yes. Well, and I think that where that really where we find a necessity for nutrition counseling is in the pre-diabetic and they don't get covered for that. There's no coverage for that. So that's where I, I usually sit and the chunk of my consultation time is explaining to them the carbohydrate, the big evil carbohydrate, but no, 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 the, the good and the bad of the carbohydrates and the impact that those have on their, their blood sugars. Do you find people get really intimidated by numbers? I mean, I know that the ADA and different organizations have tried visual cues, the plate method, because it's so hard for people to remember, okay, how many carbs can I eat per meal? How much sugar is allowed to be in my food? Do you find that that's a big barrier for people feeling like they can make good choices at the grocery? I mean, it can be, but now there's all, I mean, everyone's with their phone. So there's a ton of good apps out there that, you know, you can download, be it MyFitnessPal or Calorie King, and to really help and, and monitor the amount of carbohydrates. If you've just joined us, we're listening to Dr. Monica Munoz right here on Paradox WSTU. 
here in Stewart. And we're going to have to take a short commercial break. We'll be back in one minute. And we're back here at Paradox with Dr. Monica Munoz, endocrinologist right here in Stewart, Florida. We're talking about diabetes, primarily type 2 diabetes. And we're so glad to have you on our show today, Dr. Munoz. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Let's talk about some of the newer medications for diabetes. And I know there's some that you really like. Hmm, my favorite. Well, probably one of most of our favorites as endocrinologists is the GLP-1s or the glucagon-like peptides. So what those are, you might have seen them on TV, Ozempic or Trulicity, maybe by Durian or Victoza. Generally, they're once weekly or once daily in Victoza's case, but once weekly injections that are designed to really help control the diabetes with the nice little side effect of weight loss. Um, How much weight loss are we talking Well, see now... That's that's a good question because everyone responds differently to them. Ideally, we we I'm I'm probably seeing anywhere from about seven to fifteen percent. 
weight loss. Now, the granted, this is over three months, a three month time span. But depending on how motivated the patient is, it, it, it can they can lose a good amount of weight. And so there's a reason why endocrinologists love GLP ones, correct? Yes. And so can you tell us why that is? So the, with the weight loss, what's happening with the this brand of medications is, is that they're um, they're helping stimulate the pancreas to secrete its own natural insulin, but in a glucagon dependent um, manner, meaning that if you eat food, your pancreas is going to secrete insulin. But now what if you're going low? Well, it's not like glipizide or gliburide, which might continue to secrete insulin and cause you to bottom out. There's no hypoglycemia seen with these medications. So, so your sugar doesn't drop too low. Your sugar when won't you, drop when period. you haven't eaten. Right. When you're on this medicine. Right. Your sugar will not drop, period. So that's one. Another way is decreasing glucagon secretion. So we decrease the amount of sugar that's thrown out from the liver. So that's helping to also decrease the blood sugars. It's suppressing appetite in the brain. And then most importantly, it's delaying gastric emptying or basically just keeping the food in the stomach a lot longer. So for the listener, we are talking about those very scary diabetes medicines that they advertise on television, right? Because the rich companies that make them don't have a generic equivalent right now. So they can still charge a lot of money. And they're the oh, ones yes. that say that the side effects are blankety, 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 blank. And the adverse effects are blankety, 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 blank. And so the people come into me and they say, you sent me to that Dr. Munoz and she wants to put me on a needle. In the <laughs> olden days, my goal was to stay off of the needle well, with diabetes. in the olden days, the needles represent and insulin and they were big scary needles they were like your grandmother's knitting needles now <laughs> these needles are so small but the point so is small there we're talking a 30 31 gauge needle that's a quarter of an inch long or less you can't even feel them going in not at all and the beauty of it is that because of this tiny needle and the fact that you're only injecting once a week, potentially we can help people lose weight, which just helps them in the right direction for the whole entire di di diabetes disease. But also we can get them under improved uh, glycemic control without insulin. That's the goal. Correct. Right. You know, it's amazing when when I tell them that they have an option and it is an injectable, you see both eyebrows flare up. And then when you <laughs> tell them, but you can lose weight, you see one come down like, I'm listening. <laughs> they really do have a great place for not only for diabetics, but for pre-diabetics or even just for obesity. Look at, um, there was one called Succenda, which is Victoza on, on, at a much higher dose. That was only FDA approved for obesity. So there's, you know, and you get that with one of these um, medications, you get that with, with all the others as well. So I know that diabetes treatment, I mean, there's a, a hundred diabetes medications. Diabetes treatment is completely tailored to the individual, to the age, to the other comorbidities. But it is very possible that a person this day and age who has not that bad of diabetes could potentially get put on metformin and then on the needle, which is a GLP. And is that then on accurate? the needle. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Well, and I say the needle, you know, because it's scary, but, but maybe but it's not but so here's scary. The thing. I have started using, since we now have the new term, the needle. <laughs> well, <laughs> I want I want to call it what it is for now, desensitization. I, 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 I am therapy. now using the needle earlier and earlier in my practice because for years, Patients have been threatened by doctors. If you don't get this under control, you're going to need to be on insulin. And insulin, you know what that means? There is a needle. Mm -hmm. And people have a fear of needles. Yeah. So I introduced these early on. I give the first injection in the office. Mm -hmm. They realize it's not painful. They go, that's it? That's not so bad? And then I tell them the main side effect, a little bit of nausea. Uh, because that's one of the reasons why you lose weight. You get a little bit of nausea. You get a little bit of delayed gastric emptying. You don't empty food fast. And you get a feeling of satiety, a feeling of fullness, a little bit of nauseousness. That goes away with time. Yes. Do most people experience that? 
they do, especially when going up at, at, at a very fast rate. But I got to say, it's interesting when you were just bringing up, um, you know, especially with Victoza, I used to look at Victoza as kind of that bridge, that bridge between being on metformin and knowing that at some point you're going to need insulin because that A1C is just not budging from 9%. So let's give Victoza, which is a very small little four millimeter needle. You won't even feel it. I always tell my patients, actually, look when you're injecting because you can completely miss it. Um, and then they, you know, when they realized that it wasn't painful at all, they would sit when by the time that insulin did come around, if it came around, they were totally chill about it. They would not give me any problems with it at all. So there's a different way of, of looking at the needle and introducing that. Um, now patients just, you know, it's not, it's not grandma's sewing or knitting needle anymore. Right. It's that four millimeter needle. And just for a size comparison, just for a size comparison, Frank, the diameter of a pencil eraser is six millimeters. So we're talking about smaller than the diameter of a pencil eraser. Eraser. That, yes. I didn't even realize that. Six millimeters. Yes. See? Wow. The needle is small. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of needle phobia, another newer, uh, I guess, a new technology for endocrinology and primary care is continuous glucose monitoring. What is that? So what that is, that's basically a device that's applied um, in the subcutaneous tissue, be it the freestyle Libre, which can be is uh, really on, only on the arm versus the Dexcom, which can be in other uh, locations or even Medtronic's Guardian. But what these are intended to do is they're intended to check the blood sugar continuously every five minutes. So it is a device that sticks on our body. It has a small uh, needle-like catheter that is under the skin and in the blood stream that is continuously testing the sugar in the blood. And so these people are using a phone or some other device to see what the sugar is right. being transmitted from the machine on their arm or body. And who leaves home without their phone anymore? So now there's no reason not to know how your diabetes is being controlled or where you're at on, on the glucose ranges. So instead of being at dinner and taking out your test kit and pricking your finger and wiping blood, this is just automatically being done every second of the day while you're wearing the machine. And very conspicuously. You can swipe with the Libre right over your clothes or with the Dexcom. You just take a look. You pick up your phone and take a look at it. But yes. I'm waiting for the Apple Watch or similar smartwatch. We we play no preference to I really want I really want Apple though to start giving me money for saying Apple. Yeah, Apple. Apple. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not going to conceal I'm it. Like I would the, love for someone yeah, to too. give me some money for that. So, I I'm waiting for the Apple Watch to start reading it through the skin. And 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 it's in the works that you will one day not even have that small catheter up under the skin that they'll just be able to transmit the light through the skin, which will read your glucose through your capillaries. And I would think that will be in the next couple of years. So how is this changing your practice? How is this technology changing your practice? What do your visits look like with patients who have used a CGM versus other patients who are bringing in logs? Well, so it does take up just a, probably a little bit more time just because to download the meter. And I can also check from the, from, from uh, the background, if they, you know, if they're calling in the office and they're having a lot of problems with their blood sugars, we can just tap in, download, and I can get a quick look at what's going on. Um, but just Generally, it's it, it, it's a much smoother process. That's one thing that I can say. I don't go over every sh every blood sugar value, but there's nice graphs and whatnot that lets me know where their problem times are happening. Do people typically have to keep a dietary log in conjunction with the glucose readings for them to understand how to make dietary changes? Well, there's different... Um, there's different settings on the actual continuous glucose monitor for like exercise or for food or for um, menstrual cycles. So they can, you know, keep a keep a mind of what it is that's going on that might have caused some some unexpected change in their blood sugars. Do you think patients come in feeling more enlightened when they're using a CGM? Absolutely. So what do they say? 
they they they're loving it. They're loving it. It's like night and day. They never realize that diabetes could actually be that simple. It empowers them. It puts them in control of their own disease. That they can make their own changes. You know, the old doctors used to tell their patients what to do. The newer doctors work with their patients and make it kind of a joint agreement on how we're going to manage the disease. You're mm -hmm. absolutely right. But with diabetes and with these continuous glucose monitors and patients being able to inject themselves with very short needles, smaller than the diameter of a pencil eraser, they are in control of their own disease process. And because of that, when you're in control of one disease process, they'll start doing other things like monitoring their blood pressure more frequently or asking, well, I don't think you've checked my lipids in six months because diabetes, remember, even if you don't have elevated cholesterol, all diabetics, according to guidelines, need to be on lipid-lowering medications because diabetes isn't a cardiovascular risk factor. It's a cardiovascular risk equivalent, which basically means if you have diabetes and you haven't had a heart attack, you're much more likely to have a heart attack than someone who's already had a heart attack without diabetes. And don't ask me to repeat that twice. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I think what we're, what we're all talking about here is the fact that, you know, people love to have short term gains, right? Because it's, it's short term gains that keep us motivated. Absolutely. In other words, the people that weigh themselves every few weeks, are less successful than the people that weigh themselves every day. Because I think that it is important for people to be able to see how your individual choices impact the big picture. And so, you know, I love that moment. They're also less obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe they're, if they don't weigh as often, they're less obsessive. Right. But, but anyway, you know, there, there's a good balance there somewhere. So I think that you, you know, that's what you're talking about with putting people on GLPs earlier in the disease is that to be able to see progress with weight loss is often exactly the amount of, um, you know, spurring on that they need to continue making their lifestyle changes. When you, when you get put on a medication and, and step on a scale and you're five pounds down and then you're more motivated to avoid your extra carbohydrates, you're more motivated to take the walk after dinner. And so it's just a positive feedback loop as far as people making progress go. You got it. And it keeps on going because not just as their weight coming down, their A1C is dropping, but like Iris said, the, the cholesterol is being, is being addressed. Their liver enzymes, if they have fatty liver from the obesity, that's coming down as well. Their thyroid's improving. They have more energy. They're, they're, they're overall uh, a lot more motivated to keep on going. So diabetes is no longer the death sentence that it used to be. Now it's sort of like a wake-up call. You got it. Okay. Now, we know you like metformin as first line. And, and we've talked about the GLP injectables. What else do you like? Where do you go next in a type 2 non-insulin requiring diabetic? Well, then there's the SGLT2s, so the sodium glucose transporters. So this is another new one. That's another new one. That Those are um, known as Jardiance, Farxiga, Invokana. Um, they have a new one, Stiglatro. And what these are doing is they're also contributing to some weight loss, um, but they're helping you get rid of glucose through the urine. And this is a pill. These are pills that are taken... Um, once a day. And they're really coming out with some neat studies in terms of helping um, halt the, the progression of diabetic kidney disease, as well as decreasing um, heart attack, stroke, and, and cardiovascular death. And so right now they're still branded, correct? Meaning you can't get generic versions of these medicines? That's correct. And so are you finding it difficult to get coverage, insurance coverage for these types of medicines? Well, no, only because of, of the, the profound cardiovascular benefit. We have like a nice little template basically saying, listen, it would be silly of you as, as a commercial payer not to cover this medication. You know, look at the thousand dollars, the thousands of dollars that you can be saving by, by covering this medication. 
medication for your patient. So does it probably take a few extra steps and a prior authorization? Yeah, it will, but eventually they will get covered. So my understanding is there are only two classes of drugs then for type 2 diabetes that have shown to really decrease mortality. And one is metformin, which was an old, old drug, came out in the 50s, then it went away. There was there was finformin, and then there was metformin, and then they took it off the market, and then they brought it back, and it came back with a vengeance as being a very safe drug. Uh, it had a lot of contraindications, one of them being elevated uh, creatinine or s somewhat abnormal kidney function, but they've even relaxed that. There was an age-related uh, contraindication. They've relaxed that. We see a lot of older people on metformin now. And the other one that's shown to decrease mortality are these new SGLT2 drugs that she's just mentioned. Any others? Well, I mean, when we look at, at you know, a lot of the other, the older medications, I mean, we, we can look at the sulfonylureas, glipizide, gliburide, but who likes those? They cause hypoglycemia and weight gain. We're trying to get rid of the weight. Um, then there's Actos, um, that where Actos really, you know, we had some problems with fluid retention and exacerbation of, of congestive heart failure. Then there's DPP-4s, which DPP-4s, they're, they're okay. There for that patient. And that's like Genuvia, Trigenta. Right. The uh, Ongliza, Nacina. I mean, those are medications that if, you know, we're not look, we're looking to probably drop the A1C by about 0.4%. And they're kind of weight neutral. We don't really see a whole lot of weight loss. And they're, they're quite expensive. So, I mean, is it my favorite? No. Would I pull it out and write for it if the patient absolutely said, no, I'm not going on the needle, which by the way, I forgot to touch up, Ozempic, um, the GLP-1, the once weekly, they just came out with an oral. So if what? you have that, you know, we don't have to come out with the needle yet. They've got an oral formulation for it. But if we wanted to go about what I was getting to with DPP-4 is that patient that's absolutely refusing the needle, there's options. The advantage, is that the new one uh, that just came out, the Ozempic, the oral? Mm -hmm. But would that be daily or weekly? So that would be daily. That, that would be daily. That would See, be the daily. advantage of the needle. <laughs> You're so offended by that. I am offended by that because I like my patients to embrace the needle. Yes. I like them to. And we got to talk about it. We got to name it. We got to name it. And we got to be less scared I, of it. And we can't call it the needle anymore. We should call it the cushion. <laughs> it's, it's much softer. Lying. And you People can't like feel lying. it. And it goes into the skin and it's cushioned uh. up against the skin. And it's once a week. Wouldn't you rather take something once a week than every day? I would. That is that is another good selling point about the the needle. Essentially, is a once a week. I didn't realize it offended him so deeply. <laughs> I don't know. I want to talk about your practice because I understand that you've got quite the operation over there. Where is it? It is at the uh, the 900 building, 900 Southeast Ocean Boulevard. Um, this is South Florida Endocrine Center. And South Florida Endocrine Center. And we are still accepting new patients. And so this is you and several other endocrinologists. That's correct. And who else is in your group? So there's Dr. Alejandro Trepp. He's down on um, one floor beneath me uh, here in Stewart. And then we have a practice out in Jupiter. Uh, we have three physicians out in Jupiter, Dr. Alexandra Crayer, who's the owner of the practice, then Dr. Alan Feldman and Dr. Canelia Ventura. And so an endocrinologist has a, a, a breadth of conditions that you treat. So diabetes is just one condition that you treat. Would you say it's the majority of what you do? That's our bread and butter. And then thyroid is so next. Diabetes is our bread and thyroid is our butter. <laughs> Okay. And, 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 and what do you use for, for the crust? Maybe a little adrenal problem every now and then? A little pituitary. Um, pituitary. Maybe some testosterone. There, there, there's a little bit of, of crossover, but generally diabetes and thyroid, we're pretty overwhelmed with that. So you obviously like your job. <laughs> you look like you're having a lot of fun. It looks like you're having a lot of fun. And to me, it seems like, you know, the, the whole thing about diabetes is kind of with treating a patient with diabetes is kind of having a relationship, right? Because you're working with people 
very closely to make changes. And it seems like, well, I say it seems, but I happen to know because we have many mutual patients. I send you so many patients because I love the way that you take care of people. But I think that it's because they feel like they can relate to you. They feel like they can come into your office and tell you the truth and you're not going to be mean to them or to yell at them and judge them, but rather to collaborate with them to improve their condition. You're very relatable and very patient. So I would imagine you're a mom. I yes, <laughs> I, I she hesitated. I <laughs> yes, definitely a mother. I, Those I'm are a, my kids running around that definitely house. Definitely a mother. <laughs> I myself am a type one diabetic. I was diagnosed actually when I was uh, seven years old. Wow! So I've been through the big horse needles. I'm not going to say the grandma sewing needles, but big enough. Um, and I've had my fair share of, of, uh, dealing with diabetes and even some of these newer medications that shouldn't be used for type ones, which definitely not type ones need insulin, but you, the GLP ones or whatnot to see how they work and, and the, experience the side effects yourself. So that way I can relate with my patients and let them know, you know, this is what to expect. Are you now using GLP ones with insulin in your type one diabetic? I in in a variety of them. Yes, I am absolutely. It still always comes down to insulin. There's an, there's insulin deficiency with an absolute type one, not a type one point five or, or or an autoimmune late onset diabetic, but in the type one, they need to be on insulin. Blood pressure medications in diabetics who are normally controlled, and I have patients ask me this all the time. Why do I need to be on an ACE inhibitor, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, or an angiotensin receptor blocker, an ARB, if I'm a type 2 diabetic? Well, the good thing about those blood pressure medications is they also help to uh, prevent or even delay um, the onset of diabetic kidney disease. So it's a double whammy we're getting with those. We generally like to use those for for high blood pressure in in a type 2 diabetic. Okay. So if you're a type two diabetic, then there's a certain number of drugs you should be on. Is aspirin included as part of that? So aspirin is generally indicated if they've had a, a previous cardiovascular event, absolutely. Or if they're at risk for it. So at risk being, you know, do, do they have a history of hypertension um, or high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol? Are they obese um, and overweight? Are they over the age of 45? Granted, we need to let them know if there is no previous history of heart disease, we want to make sure we let them know it can, you know, cause some, some upset stomach or whatnot. But generally, um, for secondary prevention, absolutely. So what I'm hearing is type 2 diabetic wake-up call. Proper diet, weight loss, exercise regimen, blood pressure control, cholesterol control, blood sugar control, uh, and frequent visits to your primary care doctor. And as an endocrinologist, how frequently do you see your type 2 diabetics? Well, if they're well controlled, I'll kind of let, you know, if they're trying to lose some weight, I'll say, why don't we meet back in say three to four months? But if they're well controlled, they're at their ideal body weight. I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll let them, um, come in at every six months. Dr. Hagedorn would have been proud. Oh, they, the one of the inventors of insulin. Look at you. Okay, he he would have been so proud of you. You, you are so good at what you do. I Aww. can't wait to see any more patients. Thank Tell you. us the phone number to your practice. It is five six one six two six nine zero four one. Doctor Monica Munoz has been our fabulous guest today, talking about type two diabetes, a little bit of type one diabetes. I hope you enjoyed our show. Would you come back and talk you with us bet. about other endocrine problems? You bet. We can't wait to have you back. Thanks, guys. Listen up. We're going to have more great shows this spring. We're here at Paradox.